gives me a lot of pleasure to introduce our speaker today, who is Reverend Mark Christensen, who is a third-generation Unitarian, born in Oklahoma City, has served congregations in Tulsa, Las Cruces, New Mexico, and Oklahoma City. Mark lost his sight six months ago as a result of a series of strokes on his optical nerve. He received his Master of Divinity from Phillips Uni University in Tulsa and has served on the Southwestern Conference Board, the Unitarian Universalist Ministers Association Executive Committee, and as Ministerial Settlement Representative. Mark was last here to deliver the, the charge to the minister at Barbara's ordination. Let me introduce, please, Reverend Mark Christensen. Where do we come from? What are we? Where are we going? Where do we come from? What are we? Where are we going? Mystery, mystery, life is a middle and a mystery. Mystery, mystery, life is a riddle and a mystery. Life is a riddle and a mystery. Not something unsolvable. Not something easily known. Something we must invest ourselves in to get the most out of. And that's what we do as a community, as this congregation does as All Souls in Shreveport and the congregations that I've served in Oklahoma City or Las Cruces or Tulsa or the more than thousand Unitarian Universalist congregations across this continent. They come together to find ways that together they can be more than they are by themselves. But we, more than most religious traditions, have a tendency to ask that question in that little song. Where do we come from? What are we? Where are we going? See, there aren't too many Lutherans who sit around and wonder what the Lutheran church believes. There aren't too many Presbyterians who sit around and ask what the Presbyterian church believes. I have a priest friend in Oklahoma City, Father Tim, a Roman Catholic priest, and he says, you know, you Unitarians are the natural end result of Protestantism. <laughs> <laughs> By that he means that we have very little ability to grant authority to, to tradition just for tradition's sake. Which reminds me of a story. There was once a kingdom, perhaps the same empire in the story from earlier. And the emperor is sitting on his throne, surrounded by his advisors, and a horrible noise comes up from the city square. And it gets louder and louder. Finally, he tells his most important minister to go down and see what's happening in the city square. 
And he does, and he comes back, and the emperor says, well? He says, the Unitarians are revolting. <laughs> and he says, I know the Unitarians are revolting, but I want to know what's happening in the city square. <laughs> Sometimes both fit it. There's a little poem that was very commonly placed in Universalist churches before the merger of the Unitarians and the Universalists. And it said, He drew a circle to shut me out. Rebel, heretic, a thing to plot. But love and I had the wit to win. He drew a circle to bring him in. Edwin Markham did. He drew a circle to shut me out. Rebel, heretic, a thing to flout. But love and I had the wit to win. We drew a circle to bring him in. And I will tell you that that word heretic means more about us than anything else. And I use that term proudly. Of course, most of the religious world sees that as one of the worst things you can be called a heretic. And I will tell you that is the very core of who we are. If you read that reading that James Luther Adams gave you about the free church, you'll find something about heresy. Your affirmation, love is the doctrine of this church. principles and purposes touch on it. But perhaps to go forward, we need to think about what the word heretic is and what it means. It certainly has been cast as a pejorative, just as the name Unitarian was a pejorative, as an insult to throw against you. But if you etymologically go back to the beginning of that word, from the Latin to the Greek, it means to choose. It means I choose. I choose. It's best understood with another word that has different religious overtones. Orthodox. Orthodox means right belief. Right belief. Orthodox. So we have I choose and right belief. Those two are intention within us, and always have been. When people ask about the Unitarian Universalists, I tell them something that many of the church members I've served disagree with, and that is that we are a Protestant denomination. Now again, my friend Father Tim says, you are the ultimate result of Protestantism. But what that means is that we protest the very core of the tradition. But the reality is that we arrived, and we arrived at the time of the Protestant Reformation, at the time of Luther, at the time of Calvin. That's when the first anti-Trinitarians arose. But what happened then? Let's go back to the beginning. I think everything that we do as an institution, all of our history, all of our controversies, can be touched in the layers of strata of our history that I hope to build toward. We start out with the Protestants. And the distinction, one of the distinctions between 
the church in those days, which later became the Roman Catholic Church, and the others, the Protestants, the Protestants, was that in the Roman Catholic Church, it was not about individual belief. There was no salvation outside the cathedral. No salvation outside the church. You affirmed the church, you were going to heaven. You went against the church, you were going to limbo at least, unless someone could buy your way out and get you in. But that was true, not only of our ancestors, but of the Lutherans and of the uh, Calvinists, all of them. And we kind of move along there. We, we have a little more rational bent and a little more radical bent. We, we, our, our early histories uh, say, we have scholars who said, you know, I read the Bible, but I really don't see anything there about the Trinity. Unitarian, one God. Trinitarian, three gods. And the early universalists said, we read the Bible, and it says that Jesus died for all, not for some. And so therefore, predestination or the total depravity of humankind doesn't make any sense. So even in that first strap, where Luther and Calvin were protesting, they didn't like the way we were protesting. And we continued in that way for a few hundred years. Our ancestors come to New England and form the Pilgrim and the churches of New England, the Standing Order churches, the Pilgrims and Puritans, and they have a very literal belief in the Bible. Yes, our history says that we were biblical literalists. They didn't see it. And they kind of move along in this place. Except one thing that I've discovered in our history is it's difficult to say where do the Unitarian Universalists stand because the truth is we move. We move. Because we are open to that protesting spirit, to that questioning spirit. And somewhere in the late 1600s, early 1700s, there was a Dutch Reformed theologian named Jacob Arminius who had the audacity to suggest that human beings are born with an innate capacity to recognize and respond to God. Inhate, inherent, inherent worth and dignity. Inherent in us is the ability to recognize and respond to God, to know God's will, to do it. In us it does not take a conversion spirit. It does not take God's Son dying on the cross that it is part of our inherent humanity. A 19th century Unitarian gives me a quote that I love. I spell my God with two O's and my devil without a D. I spell my God with two O's and my devil without a D. Cyrus Parson. Well, even among the heretical Unitarians, while some accepted this more liberalized view, which said you did not need the salvific death of Christ, you did not have to have a conversion experience. Some maintained you did. And there became a fight, a tension. And by the early 1800s, we have what's called the Unitarian Controversy, which was really a controversy over the Divinity School at Harvard College. Harvard, of course, is where all the standing order of churches, ministers were educated. 
and it's still probably where a quarter of Unitarian Universalist clergy attend seminary. But Harvard had named a liberal to the Hollis Professorship of Religion at Harvard. And that didn't sit well. And there was a tension. And it led to a schism. And it led to a schism with liberals becoming the Unitarians and the conservatives becoming the Congregations. I don't know about your religious landscape here, but in Oklahoma City, the Congregationalists are very liberal. And I tell people that's the last time the Congregationalists were on the conservative side of the fight. It's only with the Unitarians. <laughs> so we churn along for a generation or so with this notion that we are Protestant, we honor Jesus, we honor his teachings, but that which is necessary for our ultimate being to become who we might be, our, our oneness with God, is in us from the beginning. It didn't have to be framed by anything. That becomes our orthodoxy. So we start by this individual relationship with God, the fellowship of all believers, solo fidea, salvation by faith alone that comes from Protestantism. And then we have this new strand that says we have the inherent capacity to recognize and respond to God. And then something else happens. By the early part of the 19th century, Emerson takes a walk in the woods and tells us that one can know as much of God in a walk in the woods as one can in a lifetime of Bible study. The transcendentalist controversy, as it's known, was in part a literary revolution. But at its core, it was a revolution about the nature of our congregations. Because, you see, when Emerson finds this walk in the woods to be more holy than a lifetime of Scripture, more holy than every sermon ever preached, he says that you know, the miracles in the Bible, they are terrible things. They are not one with the blowing clover. That our salvation will be found with the blowing clover. And the transcendentalists become quite controversial against the orthodox Unitarians who saw themselves as essentially liberal Christians. And that began a fight. And our congregations fought and stretched and fought. And in time, the transcendentalists became the norm. Just as in time, those who believed that they could spell their God with two O's and their devil without a D became the norm. Just as before, those who believed that religion was an individual thing and not a corporate thing became the norm. And you can see us at each step of that moving integration. And so the transcendentalists have become accepted, normative. And this one perhaps was not quite so much of a controversy, but an evolution or a shift within them. The people began to think, well, if I can find God in the Bible, if I can find God in the walk in the woods, if I have it within me, where else can God be found? And they thought, you know, there are religions all over the world. Maybe the Hindus, maybe the Buddhists, maybe the Muslims. 
Maybe the Native Americans have a piece of this. And maybe that is part of who we are. So this broad commitment to a wider faith becomes part of the Unitarian Universalism to come. And that is when the Universalists really spread their wings. Because prior to that point in time, the Universalists had primarily been universal salvation. That meant that Jesus said all were saved, so all were saved. One uh, wit of the day said the Universalists are squatting on the biggest word in the English language, universal. And it's time to improve the property or move on. <laughs> By which he means to broaden themselves, to include these other religious ways, or abandon that name, because they are not universal. So now we have that new strand. We have these world religions, and we have a walk in the woods. We have the Bible. We say that you can, that there is no one who gets between the believer and the Bible. That, and it's something we have true, surprisingly, with our Baptist friends. Historically, that is their policy. No one is to interpret a believer's understanding of what God has told them. It is theirs. So we have all these things. And somebody says, well, if it's in all those things, maybe it's in literature we know, too. Maybe it's in the classics. Maybe it's in Walt Whitman. Maybe it's in Emily Dickinson. Maybe it's in all these other places. And our sphere of revelation widens. That's another phrase that you must understand and keep in mind as you think of who we are. Is that we say revelation is not sealed. What we know and what we believe about the eternal is never sealed. It's always growing. Whereas many traditional religions will tell you that God's revelation is in the Bible. And it's for the believer to interpret. We say, yes, that's true, but it's in that walk in the woods. It's in these world religions. It's in these other writings, too. And then about the beginning of the 20th century, somebody says, maybe we're asking the wrong question. Perhaps we should not be asking about God, but about man. Humanism begins to arise. When the Humanist Manifesto was signed, I think all but three signers were Unitarians, and one of them was a Universalist. And I think there was a Jew. <coughs> they began with a question, if you wanted to stay theologically oriented, uh, that, is, that is asked from Proverbs, what are human beings that God should be mindful of? Perhaps we should understand who and what human beings are before we begin to think about who and what God is. And until we can know the things that are knowable to us, to speculate on that which is inherently a mystery may be premature. So the Universalists and the Unitarians begin this humanist side. And that is not a smooth transition. There are many of the congregations that resisted the humanism. We did not want to think in such terms. One aside <coughs> of the universalists, and this will be the humanism, and this will tie back in a moment. The universalists were really big on man, on mankind. Man, 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 man. Never one. And ironically, the pieces that we had in that that are represented best for our tradition in uh, what's called the Blue Hymnal. Uh, songs of the Spirit, no, that's the rest of it. Anyway, hymns for the Southern Union. The Blue Hymnal. 
very humanist, but you know, it's always mankind, always him, always he. Never him. Well, the humanists actually get to the point where they basically have a hegemony over the movie. They win the fight against the remaining mystical Protestant, the nature partnering people, and bring in this rational strength which builds through the 1950s. It embraces science. It's when we run ads as an association that says, perhaps you're a Unitarian, don't even know it. Or the kind of phrase, the, the church where we think we'll never ask you to turn off your brain on Sunday morning. And that stands, and it gets pretty thick. One of the things about that stratum that I point out is the hymnals. How many of you have been at EU more than, say, 30 years? I can't see your hands, so I'm hoping to get more hands going. The lifetime of a hymnal in Boston, America, is about 35 years across denominations. Because they're expensive to put together, they're expensive to distribute through churches, it's difficult for everybody to learn the new hymnal. So they usually last about 35 years. We put out the red hymnal, Hymns of the Spirit in 1961 to recognize the coming together of the Unitarians and the Universalists. And a funny thing happens in relationship to that humanism in the 1960s. Another one of these waves comes across us. Do you know what it was? Feminism. Suddenly, man, 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 man. <laughs> Didn't do it. So our congregations took it upon themselves. They had this brand new, thick, beautiful red hymnal to fix some of the hymns. Perhaps some of you can remember the green hymnal. It was about, originally 26 hymnal hymns and then got up to about 70 that they had gone through and they had fixed the gender on. So it would say humanity instead of mankind. Or man and woman or alternate or we ways that were more inclusive. And that turns along. So we've given aside this hymnal that we put money into, using this little green hymnal from about 1970 until 1993. And actually, ironically, after that hymnal went to press, something that rose out of the feminist movement started to affect our congregations to where they said, we're not really comfortable with this. And that was the feminist notion of God and goddess, which led to the reality of what we call paganism within Unitarian Universalism. Now, personally, I think that was a name that was chosen to be controversial. The group could, could have called themselves neo-transcendentalists and would have melded in perfectly. But they, they, they like that they, the, the tension they created. And that is our history, to have this tension. Some more tension was created, which still exists in places, about the role of the pagans in congregations. But that now has kind of become normative. There's a place for them, even in our larger, more conservative congregations. But something arises out of that that lays another stratum for us. One of those goddesses in 
touches Gaia, the earth, and environmentalism becomes one of those strands that we stand on. The rock which we stand on has these straps. And now environmentalism, the earth, is part of who we are at our very core. I have a friend who jokingly observes the only Unitarian sin is not recycling. <laughs> I'm not sure he's not right. <laughs> so that gets us to this point here where we have environmentalism and we have that. And that also brings in our, our commitment to lesbian and gay issues <coughs> along with that transition in gender so that we understand that the gender is not just male and female. And we're probably the only tradition that ever used the phrase cisgender. That is if you actually identify and appear to be the gender that you present, uh, gender conforming, the gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgender, intersex, queer community becomes part of who we are, and it fits. It's consistent with our story. So now we're moving along. We've, we've got the LGBT stuff, and we've got the environmental stuff, and we've got the feminist stuff, and we've got the humanist stuff, and we've got the transcendentalist stuff, and the literate stuff, and we've got know, the liberal stuff, the understanding God, and now we're done and nothing's going to happen, right? <laughs> <laughs> that, my friend, is the mystery. Life is a riddle and a mystery. That is the mystery. So what is that next stratum that's going to come across? That our orthodoxy, because we develop orthodoxies about this, against our own heritage, our heretic nature, comes into tension with our orthodoxies. That's what forms these strata. So what's the next point? I think we see signs that one of the next ones is virtue. It's generation. It's the fact that for some people, coming to a building and being a part of the community presently isn't necessary. So the same way that the transcendentalists said reading the Bible isn't necessary, they'll say that we can have other kinds of community that are what will cause us to thrive. And there will be some, and there are some amongst us, who say you're crazy. You can't have a virtual relationship that means anything. But millions of millennials will disagree. My son will disagree. I watched my son, my experience growing up, I'm a boomer. Uh, I graduated high school in 75. And Stayed in contact with a couple of friends through the years and dropped off. And I graduated from college in 79, and one of my friends is here with me today who served me from back in those days. But I really didn't stay in touch with too many people. And I've had different jobs, and you kind of lose connection with people, and you find new people along the way, and you build your community around them. I look at my son's life, and his friends from YRUU in high school are still his friends. His friends from college are still his friends. Because of their different understanding of the technology, they deal with community differently than I can ever imagine. And that is one of the pieces that's going to flow across this. I don't know how that's going to work. But I do know that won't be the last of it. We are heretics. 
See, when we get tired of change in society, where we're at is orthodoxy and no more. They drew a circle to shut me out. Rebel, heretic, a thing to flower. But love and I, as we get to the end, we drew a circle to bring 